Hello and welcome to Read All About It, the podcast where people talk about their favourite and not-so-favourite books. Join me, Paul Cuddihy, as I take each guest on the literary journey of their life, from their most cherished childhood read and a book they'd recommend to anyone, to the book they couldn't be paid to read again, and much more in between. So listen, enjoy, subscribe and spread the word about the Read All About It podcast. Hello and welcome to the Read All About It podcast and I'm delighted to be joined on this latest episode by Charles E. McGarry who is a crime writer based in Glasgow. Charles works as an audio editor, a newspaper sub-editor and of course a crime fiction writer. His first book, The Road to Lisbon, which wasn't a crime novel I have to say, was a dual narrative novel co-authored with Martin Gregg. I do have to say it is one of the best football novels that I have read and uh, Charles didn't pay me to say that. His first crime novel, The Killing of Helen Addison, was published back in 2017 and is the first in a series of supernatural detective fiction starring psychic detective Leo Moran. That's been followed by The Shadow of the Black Earl, which came out in 2018, and his latest book, The Mystery of the Strange Piper, which is out in 2021. Back in 2017, at the time when The Killing of Helen Addison was first published, Charles was part of a podcast serial called Debut, which was produced by Backpage Press, and it detailed his journey as an author from the bedroom to the bookshelf. Charles, welcome to the Read All About It podcast. Thanks, Paul. Thanks for having me. Now, I mentioned there right at the end the podcast that you were involved in, Debut, which was actually, as a reader and as a writer, it was a, it was a really fascinating insight into the whole writing process and how you, from the germ of an idea, you put it together until it becomes this published book that goes out into the world and, and people can read it. And was that an enjoyable or, or an important part of the whole process, just letting people almost see behind the curtain, as it were? It was really, it was driven by Backpage Press, as you, as you said, who are now actually my publisher. Uh, and Neil White, who's one of the uh, co-owners of Backpage, it was really his baby. So he conceived of it and kind of, and kind of drove it. It was just interesting, you know, you were putting your own life really under the microscope and things that you just took for granted and didn't give a huge amount of consideration to. And, you know, hopefully that was of interest to other people, especially folk who are in the same position of having that initial idea for a novel and thinking, you know, should I go through with this? Can I go through with this? What challenges and pitfalls are ahead? Because there's something about writing that there's a kind of a madness to it that when you start off, and I'm sure you've felt the same thing, Paul, that you can be spending hours of your spare time in front of a computer, you don't have a publishing deal, maybe nobody even knows that you're doing this, and there's moments that you think, my God, what am I doing? You know, I could be, I could be watching Netflix or throwing the pub or whatever else you want to be doing, and this could all just be for nothing. I could be writing something that interests me and only me and, you know, literally just uh, waste my time. There is obviously that element of a gamble to any creative process and therefore that when you realise that other people think that what you're doing is pretty good it's a nice feeling and it's a kind of validating feeling and the debut podcast kind of captured that captured that moment of the thing actually a publisher becoming interested in and then the thing going to print and actually getting decent reviews and uh, people enjoying it so it wasn't just an audience of one after all because what I would say to people once they finish this listening to this episode of the Read All About It podcast, I think it's well worth going back and checking the debut podcast. I think there's about six episodes in it, but it's, it's well worth following the journey through. And then going and read The Killing of Helen Addison, and that'll put you on this, 
this journey that has taken us now to the mystery of the strange paper, which is, is just coming out now as, as we speak. Because it always fascinates me, particularly with crime fiction. And it's such a crowded market when you when you come up with somebody which is a wee bit different in terms of the, the main character, which you've done with Leo Moran, who had mentioned as like this kind of psychic detective. Was it always in your head that you were going to take him on a journey or would you the first idea for the book and then it was only after that you wanted to see where he took you in terms of your writing? The, the concept of it was, it all came at once, which was the setting for the first book and the character. I think I'd had the idea of a psychic detective for quite a number of years, which, in other words, someone who experiences certain visions that help him interpret certain crimes. And he's a, essentially a private investigator and he helps the police with a, a murder case. But I had absolutely no flesh on the bones of the character at all. I guess all I did know that was that I didn't want another hard-bitten, you know, divorcee, alcoholic. Well, Leo is a bit of an alcoholic, so that bit holds true. But I wanted someone that was that was different and that was was more golden age, actually. That was more to do maybe with the English golden age of crime fiction than, I guess, the kind of current urban crime fiction that we're used to. In terms of a journey with them, the initial one set up in a place called Loch Ohn, which is just a fictionalised version of Loch Awe. So the setting was really important. It was It's almost a character in its own right. And the idea was that in every book in the series, even I'd only scoped out the first one, it would be essentially set somewhere in the Scottish countryside, maybe at a different time of year, somewhere different in the Scottish countryside, with certain scenes within Glasgow. So you'd see in Leo's flat, the coffee house he goes to, whatever else. That held true for the second book, which was mostly set in the in Galloway. And it's held true for the the third book, which is coming out soon. And it's mostly set on the Isle of Sauna, which is an island in the Firth of Clyde, which, does, which is fictional, but it's based on the Isle of Butte. Whether in the future I would stick with that strict format, I'm not sure. I might have one that's set purely in Glasgow. But in terms of the inner journey of Leo, yeah, he changes over the books. And I think he's got enough depth and self-awareness to, to evolve. One of the books, of the one I was talking about, uh, I just referred to there, possibly one set in Thailand and Glasgow, one which I might write would be a prequel. So it would be set in the mid-1990s, and this would be the time when Leo, this is referenced in the first three books, this would be the time when Leo was recovering from mental illness, and he would be, you know, not in a particularly good place and trying to uh, unravel a complex multiple murder case. So I think there's enough... There's enough juice in Leo, you know, to see a good few books. And there's enough interesting places in Scotland. And who knows, maybe even England or abroad yeah. to uh, keep it going. It's funny when I, when I was just reading that wee introduction, and obviously I mentioned the first novel that you co-wrote with Martin Gregg, The Road to Lisbon, which, as I said, is definitely not a crime fiction novel, but it's, and I've had mentioned this before in the podcast, I think there's a real dearth of really good football fiction. And obviously I'm not saying that because Martin's been a previous guest on the podcast and I'm not saying that because I know you and it's also about my team, Celtic. But I thought it was brilliantly done because it's your telling the story of Celtic's road to Lisbon in 67, partly through the eyes of the manager, Jopstein, but also this brilliant road trip of the group of guys who came went from Glasgow to Lisbon, which was obviously something that happened at the time for thousands of people. And I mean, that's a completely different thing that you were writing about compared to what you ended up, you know, going down this road of the, the, the crime books. Yeah, it's a totally different tone and, and kind of style as well because the guys in the well, in, in the Road to Lisbon, Martin wrote the whole half of the book that was in the voice of Jock Steen. He wrote that and I wrote the whole 
half that was in the voice of Tim, who's a kind of archetypal fan. So Timmy's pals are rough and ready boys from the Gorbals, whereas Leo Moran, and you know, he's he's someone who's well, he's now of a different social milieu, so we say, and you know, he's a very cultured man. He's very kind of speaks very well and eats very well and all the rest of it. So, I the books they do contrast. Certainly, my writing in the two books does contrast, but. I would quite maybe like to visit that, revisit that again. Not not necessarily the Celtic thing, but just the kind of more working class voice in fiction. And uh, in fact, I'm reading a book at the moment, which is a memoir. And the reason I'm reading it is because of one of your podcasts. It was recommended by Hugh McDonald, Brendan Behan's Boston Boy. And it's, I can hardly put it down, actually. I'm almost finished it. I'm going to be really depressed when I finish it. But just the, the vernacular, he uses a ton of phrase. He's obviously North Dublin. It's just absolutely sublime and so funny and so witty and so quick that it, it whets my appetite maybe to revisit that kind of fiction, you know, albeit his is, we're talking about a memoir here, probably Brendan B, and he's probably made half it up. The other thing I've always, and again, I've asked any time we get anybody on who is just on that point of bringing out a new book, whether it's the first book or whether it's, you know, in your case, your fourth novel and the third in this series, is there a, a slight... I'm always curious as to, you know, the emotions. Is there a sense of excitement that people are going to get to read The Mystery of the Strange Paper? Or is there slight apprehension or nervousness? Because once you, obviously, once you put it out into the world, it's people who don't know you who are then picking up the book. Or people who have read the first two who want to know what's ha- what's happening with Leo Moran now. What are the feelings just at that point where, where the book's just about to hit the shelves in the bookshops? There's a peculiar thing about writing a book. You know, you put so much effort into it and it takes you so long my mother's currently reading an advanced copy of it, which I just gave her, and she's nearly finished it. And there's almost that sense of, I can't believe you're reading this so quickly, you know, it's, uh, I put so much work into that. <laughs> so there's almost something, I guess there is something anticlimactic about it. I guess a slight trepidation is, well, is it as good as the other two? I'm quite confident that it is. So, in fact, I like to think that it's better. So that part of me, I feel pretty good about the book. The other thing that I feel good about is that um, we put, uh, I'll hold it up to you actually, I know that your listeners won't be able to see this, but we, we did a new set of covers and uh, we've also rebranded the first two books. So we've got a, a kind of golden age feel to them, which I think was missing from the first two covers. don't think the first two covers were bad originally, but uh, I think this is more indicative of what the contents are. Because in many ways, these books are a bit of a trip back in time, although they're set in the current day. A lot of people sometimes forget that they're reading a novel set in the current day and then, you know, something will happen, a mobile phone will ring or something. So it's quite exciting to have that, you know, and have have the branding, you know, with the good review quotes on the front and inside. So, yeah, it's, it's what it is. There's downsides to the run-up to publishing, but there's also undoubtedly excitement too. Interestingly, you mentioned the cover because... I'm a big believer in people do judge a book by its cover, particularly when you go into bookshops and you are, you know, there's so many books there, you want yours to stand out. And I think that's certainly the, the mystery of the strange paper. It's just this bold red background and then the design. And, and I think, as you say, although it's set in the present day, it does give that sense of maybe being from an earlier era. But I think it just, at the very least, it's going to catch people's eyes. And what you want is just for people then to pick it up and then, they can read the front, the back, and then hopefully they don't put it back down again. I mean, I think some people are going to love these books, some people aren't. It's not going to be everyone's cup of tea, but you want the cover to at least represent what's inside it, as I say. And it is about standing out, especially with crime fiction. 
something that really does puzzle me a bit is that crime novels tend to have very similar covers, which is generally a bleary photograph overlaid with kind of luminous writing and kind of block capitals. And I'm not saying they look bad, right, but they never arrest my attention. So I would need, I would really need to get a recommendation from a reviewer or from someone to, to buy a crime book. And I, don't, I just don't know why people don't put a bit more imagination into the, the covers. I don't, I don't know. The good thing is that I've got this thing I can hang on, which is, as I say, it's golden age. It's got an anachronistic feel to it. So I'm able to differentiate to the way it actually looks. And I also think as well, which is, I mean, it's very small type at the bottom of the, the cover, but I think it's actually one of the crucial things. It's saying it's the third Leo Moran murder mystery. And I think when you're a reader, particularly a reader of crime fiction, I think that's a real hook because people like the series. You know, there are obviously one-off crime novels, but I think that people then think that there's something that they can get their teeth into. That's actually a selling point for me. Absolutely. And uh, also, you know, when you when the first book comes out, you can't put a review quote on it because you don't have any reviews yet. So it's been good doing that. The interesting story about the covers is... I knew I wanted something that was redolent of the golden age. And I had all sorts of ideas. Maybe it could be quite colourful illustrations of characters in a scene from the book, or maybe a kind of art deco action scene of a car racing or something like that. And I spoke to different designers. I looked at tons and tons of book covers. And I really was on the verge of giving up. I kind of thought, I don't know what I'm looking for here, you know. So I went on a, one of these design websites where different artists ply their wares and it had been a competition for a, a new omnibus by Marjorie Allingham, who was one of the Golden Age writers, long dead now. And anyway, this woman, this Brazilian woman had come, had come runner-up or she hadn't won this competition. But I actually preferred hers to the one that won it and she'd done three, she'd done three versions with three different colours or kind of dominant colours. So I got in touch with her in Brazil and I said, look, I've got these three books. If we could change the lettering and there's kind of little illustrations inlaid into the main design to suit each book, I think be, I think it would work really well. She said, that's fine. And we agreed a price and everything went well. And I have to say, everybody's been really positive about the covers and it felt almost serendipitous coming across her, you know, and it gives also gives the the series they're kind of bound in the same theme because they've got a similar background pattern. So if I, you know, if I did a fourth and a fifth, it would just be the same thing again with a different colour scheme and different inlaid details. But as I say, this was these were originally designed for Marjorie Allingham, you know, so actual bonafide golden age designs. Obviously, we'll talk about your writing throughout the course of the, the podcast, but I always like to take people on their the literary journey of their life. So if I can take you back to childhood first of all and uh, get your favourite book from childhood and the book that you chose was Robin Hood Yes, and we noticed there's no author's name, obviously there's umpteen uh, Robin Hood books out there, truth is I don't know even if there was an author's name on this edition I got, it was at a children's party when I probably was about 8 years of age and it passed the parcel I won this little paperback of Robin Hood and I just Absolutely adored this book. Robin Hood obviously is a, a legend that's been around for, I guess, about 800 years. And there are certain recurring stories, as I'm sure most people know, that they've kind of traced when they were added to the legend over the centuries. At first, they would be told in either ballads or just orally. So this little paperback that I won, it had the kind of best ones, and it told them really nicely. It might just have been some 
employee of whatever publisher this was that wrote them up. And I read it and reread it. And I really became quite obsessed by Robin Hood. And I suppose it just because of that, it must have got me into reading as a child. My brother John, he had a, a nice hardback edition, or got a hardback edition for his confirmation. And I remember I swapped that off him. And I would go to the library and get different ones out. I remember there was, I don't know if you remember, Paul, there used to be a thing called Choose Your Own Adventure. They probably don't exist anymore with computer games and everything. But Choose Your Own Adventure books were quite popular in the 80s among kids. And it was just that. You, you started the book and at the end of the section of the chapter, you got to choose the next stage. And then, you know, what do you want to do now? Option A, turn to page, whatever. And the adventure would unfold according to how you decided. And of course, they're all different combinations of these decisions. You could end up in a real dead end. I remember one of them, you ended up trusting this old monk or old knight or something. It turned out he was a madman. He locked you in this charnel house and you were left there to die with all these rotting bones. So I was kind of pretty obsessed by it as a kid. I used to try and get other kids to play it. You know, let's play Robin Hood. And nobody else was interested. There was something something about the heroism of Robin Hood, the, the high japes and daring do, the honour of these men who robbed from the rich and gave to the poor, the courage they had. They were kind of like medieval anarchists. You know, they rejected this tyrannical state and just lived on their own terms. Freedom of that life. And of course, just that typical childhood. You, as a child, you tend to see, to see things in binary terms. So it was the ultimate good guys be the bad guys. But I think most of all, it was the, the fact that these men lived in the forest, lived close to nature, close to the beauty of the natural world that really inspired me. And uh, I don't think that's ever left me. The older I get, the more in, the more I love trees. I find myself sometimes stopping and staring at a tree. And the older I get, I've always lived in built-up areas. The older I get, I think, the more I think I will retire to the country. I don't know where, somewhere in Scotland, but definitely somewhere with a wood nearby that I can walk in. So, yeah, I mean, it's just, Robin is just one of these stories that as a kid, it lit up my imagination. It was funny you mentioned about the the Choose Your Own Adventure books, because I, I didn't, I don't remember ever reading them myself as a child, but Alan Bissett, you know, the Scottish writer who, he was a previous guest on the podcast, and kind of similar to you when he was talking about this particular category, those were the books that he remembered and, and he loved them and how many pals would all read them and swap them. And just in the course of the podcast, we were kind of talking and he was saying, you know, I always wonder why nobody's ever done that as an adult. And he ended up during lockdown He's written a book called Lazy Susan, which is a, an adult. Oh, course. So that's basically it's a choose your own adventure. And actually, really? if you look in the acknowledgements, either the front or the back, it gives me and the podcast a wee name check as the kind of inspiration because it was in the back of the, the conversation that he went away and wrote that book. So Paul Cuddy, who's reading all about the podcast, came up with the idea of the format. Brilliant. I got that Christmas and it's just sitting there among all the books I've got to read. So that's next. I'm going to have that after... Postal boy. Well, can I give you another recommendation then? Because uh-huh. just, just on the back of you talking about your fascination with trees and want to live in the country, I read a book last year which was called The Glorious Life of the Oak by a guy called John Lewis Stemple. And it was basically the story of the oak tree in, in terms of its cultural significance and also its significance in terms of the British landscape. And it was a book that, you know, sometimes you read a book and you have no idea, I have no idea what, what it was that captured my attention with it it's quite a short book but it is one of the most fascinating books that i've I've ever read because it is it goes into the whole history of the oak tree over the centuries and and the significance as i say culturally politically 
I think you would love the book, just even, you know, particularly if you're, you're fascinated by trees. And I, I would thoroughly recommend that. That's wonderful. And right back at you, I'll give you a recommendation. Uh, you're familiar with a guy called Willie Slavin? I know the name, uh, yeah. Anyway, Willie Slavin wrote his memoir, Life is Not a Long, Quiet River, and he had a, a rich and colourful life as a priest. He's now retired, but he now lives, he lives in a forest somewhere in Scotland. The landowner lets him live there. He lives in a hut because he's, he's a hutting enthusiast. The hutting movement is a real thing. It started uh, between the wars, and the whole idea was industrial workers would pay a small rent to landowners and to build a hut and, and, and live there. And Willie Slavin actually lives in a, in a hut with no electricity and no running water. Uh, every day he walks to the nearest village and gets one square meal at the pub and he just kind of makes do the rest of the time. There's something so enchanting about that, about that idea of just living back with nature, just being concerned with the bare necessities of existence and unencumbered by all the technology and uh, many of the kind of unnecessary burdens that we face in, in modern life. I don't know, I just I think that'd be good. That appeals to me, maybe not the hut thing, maybe like an indoor carsey and grant myself that luxury. But uh, anyway, it's a, it's a good read. If I can take you on then from, from childhoods and past the parcel and Robin Hood's to kind of teenage formative years book and the book that you've chosen is The Treasure of the Sierra Madre by B. Traven. Are you familiar with this book, Paul? I'm familiar with the film. When I was reading it, but the book, it intrigues me just in terms of the authorship, etc. of it, but I've never actually read the book. It's, I think it's just coincidental that I read it as a teenager. I don't think it's necessarily a young adult book or anything. The author's a guy called B. Traven, and it's a, a nom de plume, and no one knows for sure who he was. There are different theories. He wrote different books. I got this book and a few other books when I was a teenager from my dad, who's dead a few years now. But dad was a, a technical teacher at secondary school. Occasionally, the, he would bring a book home, and it would probably be when the library was clearly old stock or whatever. And so I'd get some dog ear book. And he would quite often give them to me. And I don't know if maybe he saw something in me that he thought I'd be interested in books. Maybe even he saw I might be interested in writing. One of the ones he brought home was The Treasure of the Sierra Madre, which is essentially a Western. It's really quite a complex morality tale about conscience and greed and paranoia. It was made into a brilliant film by John Huston, the great uh, Hollywood director. And his dad actually stars in it. Walter Huston plays the older man, and Humphrey Bogart plays the younger man, uh, or one of the younger men, who's called Dobbs. So these three down at heel Americans, this would be kind of early part of the 20th century. They are in Mexico and they, they go gold prospecting. The older guy, Howard, he's got experience at this. So they get into these mountains and they strike it rich. I mean, after a lot of hard work and perseverance and a lot of trials, like passing bandits and things like that. And they've, you know, they've made their fortune, the three of them, they clear off and they've got all this gold dust concealed about their pack animals and things. The older man has to go on a mission of mercy, he has to go and save a child at a, a nearby village. And interestingly, that's that act of goodness, of kindness, is the very thing that causes disaster because Dobbs, the Dobbs character who in the movie is played by Bogey, his badness and meanness and paranoia and greed kind of comes to the fore without the stabilising influence of the older man. Um, it's, it's a pretty intelligent book. 
it's a, a good book. I thoroughly recommend it. It's uh, that idea of doing something in, in fiction, be it films or plays or anything else, the idea of doing the right thing and it causing negative effects, I think is really interesting, especially when sometimes the character might be aware of the fact that it's going to have negative side effects. Sometimes even a wretched character, a wicked character, might do something ultimately redemptive and good, even though they know it might be their downfall. That's not the case in this book, but certainly him leaving the other two men is the, uh, the turning point of the book. The other book I was kind of considering speaking about in terms of those teenage years, and this is probably the most obvious one for us to talk about in terms of your teenage years, is Catch on the Rye by G.D. Salinger. It's a very peculiar experience I had reading that. I was kind of late, in my late teens by then, maybe a bit later than other people got it, because I think it was a high school book at one point. That was a book that more than any other book I've read in my life gave an actual emotional feeling that caused and stimulated an actual emotional feeling. And moreover, that feeling lasted a few days. And I guess the only way I can describe it would be as teenage angst kind of sanctified by this book and a kind of rejection of the, the hypocrisy and to use a Holden Coffee, which was the star of the book, to use one of his words, the phoniness of the adult world. It was just very peculiar. It actually changed your perception reading this book in the, in the temporary sense. And then I remember rereading it, probably mid to late 20s, so not that long after, and quite enjoying it, you know, quite uh, still enjoying it as a novel, it still worked, but that feeling was just totally absent. It was so strange. It was just, it was for that formative time in your life. It's a book that's, that's actually had a malignant effect on some people and uh, some disturbed people. I mean, you, you might well know this, but the guy that assassinated John Lennon was basically reenacting out parts of the book. And the guy that tried to assassinate Ronald Reagan, I think he might even have had a copy of it in his pocket. And there's another violent crimes associated with it. So it's that's just something that I thought deserved an honourable mention or dishonourable mention. Because one of the things that always I'm always curious about, particularly with writers, for example, you mentioned earlier on about your dad maybe just had a sense that you you were interested in reading and perhaps interested in writing. And at what point, do you, do you remember a point where it became more than just reading books for you, that you, even if it's just like the kind of kennel of an idea in your head that you know, one day I'd, I'd like to do that myself, I'd like to, whatever's in ideas I've got, I'd like to see them in book form. Are we already writing at that age? No, I mean, I guess I'd quite a vivid, you know, play fantasy world. You know, I mean, we're talking about Robin Hood earlier and, I mean, I would reenact things and make up scenarios by myself. And I'd, I suppose, I, mean, I don't know if I would call it writing, but I'd, you, we used to do this comedy thing, me and my brother John. It was kind of, I guess it was based on Laurel and Hardy a little bit. And I think maybe that interested Dad a bit. But in terms of writing, I didn't do much creative writing until at the very end of my 20s. When I was a teenager and I, I'm early 20s, I was interested in making music. I was in a couple of bands and you know, writing music and, and making songs. That was what I was into. And I took up all my kind of artistic dreams and headspace. Uh, and then that kind of fizzled out. And for a few years, I didn't really do anything creative. And then I just started writing short stories, some which were about my days in the band, things like that. Then I started writing a film script, which was based on these Celtic supporters who go to Lisbon in 1967. I thought it'd make a great movie. My friend Martin Gregg asked to read it. He liked it. We talked to a producer, thought it was promising, but never really got anywhere. 
And I made it better. And then Martin came up with this idea that we we turn it into a novel, that I novelised the, the film script. And then he writes an entirely different narrative from the perspective of George Steen, Celtic manager, when Celtic won the European Cup in 1967. And then we alternate between the two voice narrative voices, one of the supporter, one of the manager, in the several days leading up to and including the final. Then, subsequent to that, it was actually before that book was out, I'd pretty much knocked out a first draft of Ghost of Helen Addison. And so it was just, it was a kind of roundabout route to getting here. But uh, no, there was no burning desire in me as a child or an adolescent or a, even as a young man to be a, a prose writer. I'm not, I'm not saying I might not have written the odd thing. I may and maybe forgotten about it, but it wasn't something I, probably wasn't something I thought I could really do. And also, you know, it's a funny thing. I mean, I, I did read as a child and I did read as an adolescent. And I would say I read more than most, but I would say there was kids that read a lot more than me. I think you have to have read quite a lot before you can write. And I probably just needed to get a hell of a lot more books read, you know, under my belt, like good literature, or all different types of literature. And also that maturing that happens by the time you get to the end of your 20s. There's very few people, I think, can write well or authentically younger than that. There are some. Um, Donna Tart springs to mind. But I think that generally you need that wee bit of, life experience, that wee bit of wisdom that comes with getting through the rigours of youth. The other thing I always think is as well that even if you have no idea that you want to be a writer, even just, as you say, all those years of actually reading books, then you're kind of learning anyway, even if you don't quite realise it. It gives you that kind of foundation for the for the moment where you start to put pen to paper, that all these influences you've had over the years in terms of literature you've read must come into play and help you in some way when you're actually doing your own writing. I couldn't agree with you more, and it's that's a really strange thing. It's like a process of osmosis. You maybe don't know what your voice is going to be like when you do write until such time as you do it, and then you realise that, well, okay, I can see though all these influences and things that maybe you read year, uh, years before, and it's taught you the grammar and syntax of language, but also just the, it stretched you in terms of how to express yourself using the written word and... It's done that without, it's, it's taken you on this university course without you realising it. Nothing's wasted, you know. It's an, it really is an amazing realisation. The other thing, when you just were, you were talking about the treasure of the Sierra Madre, reminded me, which again is another book recommendation for you if you haven't read it, a novel that came out, I think, last year called How Much of These Hills is Gold, which is uh, by Sipam Zhang who is a Chinese-American writer. It was shortlisted for the Booker Prize last year, the, the Douglas Stewart one with Shuggy Bain. It's basically the story of the, uh, these Chinese people that come over for, during the gold rush. The story's all about, deals with immigration, obviously deals with the gold rush, deals with family, deals with gender and gender identity set in this really harsh 19th century world. It's an it's absolutely extraordinary book. Because um, funny, when I, when I did when I interviewed Douglas Stewart, who obviously won the Booker Prize, that was the one that he'd said, he'd read them all and he's thinking, well, I don't know if I can win when I've read this one. I still prefer Shuggy Bain, obviously, but that's well worth reading as well. Brilliant. Oh, thanks for that. You are going to go away from this podcast with a whole pile of books that you're going to have to add to your to-be-read list. Well, you are listening to the Read All About It podcast with me, Paul Cuddy, and my guest, the writer Charles E. McGarry. And Charles, we're on to your third book choice. That is a book that you would recommend to anyone 
and the book you've chosen is The Grapes of Wrath by John Steinbeck. Yes, but before I go into that, I'm going to try and sneak one in because that's obviously a series book. But I want to, if you don't mind, sneak in a, just a brief mention of a more light-hearted... As, as I always say to people, there are no rules, so sneak away. The rules here are to be bent, and when I re- listened to Hugh McDonald's podcast, I realised he was cheating like mad. And the, the other bit I'd like to mention is The Tales of Para Handy. It wasn't originally a book. It was originally a, a series of stories told in a newspaper in Glasgow. I think it would be in the 1920s, maybe, that they appeared. Although some of the, come to think of it, some of the stories were around the time of the First World War. So that kind of period, they've been you know brought together in various compilations. And they focus on the eponymous Para Handy, who is a Gallic skipper of what's called a puffer, which is a, basically a little steamboat that these were the kind of pack horses of the Clyde in the latter half of the 19th century and the first half of the 20th century. The, the tales are just little comic adventures that this Parahandi and his crew get up to. And I love characters like that who are kind of lovable rogues, chancers, but who deep down have got a heart of gold. I might just mention one of my favourite politicians, sadly long dead, would be John Smith, the former leader of the Labour Party. He was actually from, or he spent most of his formative years in Ardrishig, which is in, in Argyll, and he was quite enchanted by these puffers, and you must have seen going by, and he was quite enchanted by Parahandi. One summer, when he was probably a student, he managed to get a job on one of them, which was like a dream come true, and he was soon disabused of the romantic notion because he spent the whole summer peeling potatoes in a dark hole of the, the hull and feeling seasick. But interestingly, when he when he went to Parliament, every new MP gets to bring a book. It's a tradition at the House of Commons that you give this book to, you donate a book to the House of Commons Library. And he, being a kind of plain, unpretentious Scotsman, gave Neil Munro's Tales of Parahandi. And I loved that because I thought that of all these old Etonians bringing, probably bringing first editions of Kipling and things. So, yeah, I'll squeeze in a quick mention of Parahandi. Grapes of Wrath, it's a, a book that I think a lot of people have read because it was a, it was on the secondary school curriculum for many years. If you haven't read it, I would highly recommend it. It's a book that always stuck with me. It's in some ways an easy book to read. It's a, you know, it's a, it's a story. It's a, a very readable, page-turnable book. But it's a book with a great social conscience. It's a very well-written book. It follows the fortunes or rather misfortunes of the Jode family who are from the Midwest, set in the 1930s. At the time of the Dust Bowl, for people who don't know what the Dust Bowl is, there was a kind of natural catastrophe for farmers in the Midwest back then. The topsoil all dried out, there was a drought, and then the, the winds and the cyclones and that blew the topsoil away. So these farmers were just ruined overnight. Uh, and they would kind of been subsistence farmers, a lot of them, anyway. Because this was all happening against the backdrop of the Great Depression. So it was a real double whammy these people were facing. And there was nothing to do but leave, you know, just obstacles and leave. Steinbeck describes it brilliantly, this migration of these people. A lot of them, including the Jodes, went west. So does Ma Jodes. She's the kind of life and soul and keeps everyone going. Pa's kind of ground down. There's Tom Jode, who is kind of the hero of the book, really, kind of becomes more and more the leader of the family. There's Rose of Sharn as his sister, who's expecting a baby, her husband. So they go, they go west to California, which the Golden State, you know, there'll be work there. And they find themselves exploited, they find themselves harassed by law enforcement. 
and they found themselves rejected. I mean, these people were refugees, really, and the locals didn't want them. Called, they referred to them as Okies, as in Oklahoma. So Steinbeck, he, he had first-hand knowledge of what happened to these people because he obviously lived in California, and he actually went to some of the camps that these people had set up. And one of them was flooded, and I remember a description of it that the people who were trying to help just thought it was impossible. You know, they just weren't doing any good. It was just the level of human misery was just on such a large scale and it was people dying and all this. This was the product of his what he'd seen with his own eyes. And he wrote it apparently in 100 days, but the I guess the planning and gestating of it had been years in the making. And it's a book, I would say, that has a, that it humanises the Jodes and these poor people. It celebrates a common decency. It's got this kind of righteous, just about restrained righteous anger on their behalf. In fact, do you mind if I read a little abridged passage in it, which has always stuck with me? As I'm reading it, I will skip a couple of bits out. Carloads of oranges dumped on the ground. The people came for miles to take the fruit, but this could not be. How would they buy oranges at 20 cents a dozen if they could drive out and pick them up? And men with hoses squat kerosene on the oranges, and they are angry at the crime and angry at the people who have come to take the fruit. A million people hungry needing the fruit and kerosene sprayed over the golden mountains, and the smell of rot fills the country. There is a crime here that goes beyond denunciation. There is a sorrow here that weeping cannot symbolise. There is a failure here that topples all our successes. The fertile earth, the straight tree rows, the sturdy trunks and the ripe fruit, and children dying of pellagra must die because a profit cannot be taken from an orange. And coroners must fill in the certificates, died of malnutrition, because the food must rot, must be forced to rot. In the eyes of the hungry, there is a growing wrath. In the souls of the people, the grapes of wrath are filling and growing heavy, growing heavy for the vintage. That was a, a, a passage from the book that always stuck with me. Because I have to say, it's one of my favourite books. I'm not a massive rereader, but it's a book I've read several times. You know, you mentioned already the quality of the writing in it. Because there was two things that always struck me. Obviously, I don't want, there's no spoiler, because if people haven't read it, I'll tell them to read it. The end of the book is the most heartbreaking thing. Yeah. One of the few books that I've actually had, it's made me cry. It's actually so emotional. But even, it was one of those books as well, the writing of it. Because I always, I always remember when they're on that kind of road trip, the way he described how the mother would cook, you could actually almost taste it. That it was so vivid. And that was one of the things that struck me that kind of elevated it from a lot of other books. That you, you kind of felt you were there and you were, this food was, you could almost feel your mouth watering and you were tasting it. And you thought, that's, there's something extraordinary about that. And the, the story, as you say, is so readable, but it's so powerful as well. You know, that kind of passage you just read totally illustrates that. Yeah. I mean, food and hunger are just constant themes in the book. And yeah, the, the final scene, and again, I'm like you, I won't spoil it, but the device that he uses is just so brilliant and so moving. Sadly, the film, which is a good film, and it was a John Ford film, they omit that. And it's probably because Hollywood in those days was a bit prudish about the type of thing that uh, was involved. And it's a shame, actually, because I think the film you know, it doesn't end as meaningfully as the book does. Uh, it kind of lets it down a bit. But uh, that's The Grapes of Wrath. I've read a few other Steinbeck's. I'm not sure you got close to that, to be honest. I found East of Eden absolutely captivating. And, and, and of Mice and Men's a great book. You can almost read in, in one sitting, I feel. East of Eden 
I don't know. I just I struggled with that book a bit. I don't know why. I've never I've not reread it to be fair on like the Great of Wrath. There's other books and I think even of music written about that era, the nineteen thirties. Woody Guthrie wrote a good book which came in back into print a few years ago. It's called Bound for Glory. Woody Guthrie obviously being the, the folk singer. He actually wrote a bunch of songs called Dust Bowl Ballads. So he wrote about that and he was very much a kind of left wing guy, a guy coming from the perspective of the tour. This book, Bound for Glory, is really worth a read. Although it's a memoir of his time, it's not a novel. It's a memoir of his time during the Depression, riding the fake cars, which was a big thing, looking for work, getting moved on. And he deals with a lot of the kind of, again, like Steinbeck, although he's writing this as non-fiction, deals with a lot of the humanity there was at the bottom of society. And interestingly, also that colour bar, which was so prevalent in America, there wasn't prevalent at the bottom. People looked out for each other, regardless of what race they were. Now, that wasn't true across the board, of course. There was people who were rotters as well, who would hit you over the head and steal your dinner. But it's a, a worthy read that Woody Guthrie found out actually had quite a strong connection to Glasgow. He was, his people, or his, his name derived from Scotland. And he spent a bit of time in Glasgow during the war because he was in the Merchant Marine. And his ship got damaged. I think it was hit a mine or was torpedoed or something. And he loved Glasgow. He absolutely adored it. He really found it. He said it was a really American city. He loved the way that people were so friendly and all that. He really felt at home here. I always feel quite proud of when I read that. The other thing I was just going to mention just before we move on is that obviously Guthrie, because as soon as I heard the name Guthrie, I think of the main character in Sunset Song as well, Chris Guthrie. So maybe a Scottish name, Scottish roots as well. So this is one of my favourite bits in the in the podcast where obviously we've gone from talking about books that you would recommend to anyone to a book that I couldn't pay you to read again. And the one that you have chosen is a book by Dennis Wheatley called The Devil Rides Out. So why couldn't I pay you to read that one again? I don't have a hell of a lot to say about it. I mean, it was a, a book. The only reason I kind of chose it, I've probably read worse books than this, Paul. The reason I chose it was it was fairly recently that, that I read it and I had a kind of particular interest in it because my Leo Moran detective books have got a supernatural element to them. Whether it's an imagined supernatural element or a real supernatural element, Leo himself experiences psychic visions which pertain to certain crimes. So... When I heard that Janice Wheatley was this writer in the 1930s who was immensely popular and writing these books about the occult, you know, poetic my appetite. I remember seeing his books lying around when I was a kid and I just found it really disappointing. I just found it kind of quite trashy, pulp fiction. Didn't find the characters remotely sympathetic, the duck whoever he is, duck or whatever, who's the, the main psychic detective. I just found them cold one-dimensional, and I was just kind of amazed that it was so popular and I, just, I wouldn't recommend them. It was just a bit of a disappointment because I thought I was going to find a kind of spirit there. Not the worst book I've ever read, but you couldn't pay me to read it again. <laughs> In terms of your reading habits, if you start a book, do you generally persevere to the end? Or if you're finding it a slog or you're just finding it, it's just not for you, do you, do you put it down and go and pick up something else? The older I get, the less tolerant I am. I mean, to me, you know, reading a book is a commitment. It's not watching a movie, which is two hours. Reading a book is something that can occupy your spare time or chunk of your spare time for one, two, three, four weeks. And I'm just, there's so many books to be read in the world. And I'm not, if, there's some, if I'm not enjoying something, I will just put it down now. Um, I used to do, do it quite a lot recently because I was getting books out of my library. 
I live quite near White Inch Library and I would get, I would order books in on the Glasgow library system. A few days later, they would appear at the branch if they didn't have it already in the branch. So it was great, you know, it was saving me a fortune in books. And I think that fact that it was a library book means that you're, you you have not paid a tear for it. You're much more inclined to say, well, I'm not going to persevere with this. Is that library one of the ones that's been earmarked for closure by Glasgow Life? Yeah, and it's it's just it's just unbelievable. You know, it's that they're doing this. I, I've done my bit by writing a few letters, etc. Because it's funny, you know, how you were, men- you were mentioning the when we were talking about Steinbeck and Grapes of Wrath in the 30s. I remember a few years ago being asked to do like a love letter to my local library. And at the time I was reading, and during the Great Depression, it was one of the things that didn't close in America, that libraries were almost seen as the last refuge for people that either was just a building where people could get a bit of shelter, but it was also a place that that regardless of your class, your your economic circumstances, when you walked in there, you had the same access to everything as everyone else. And it was seen as a key thing to stay open. So it dismays me whether it's councils or governments taking advantage of situations and they target libraries, they should always be the last thing to close. Yes, and I used the exact same phrase in one of the letters I wrote, you know, it's the last service that you close, and it's just interesting the double speak you get from bureaucracy sometimes. I got a response saying, in, in so many words, it says we're not closing the library, but we're just not reopening it after COVID, which, what can you say against that kind of logic? And also, you know, the fact that they're, they're, they're talking about possibly hosting it in the Leisure Centre at Scotts, which is entirely unsuitable and quite far from where it is at the moment. I mean, that doesn't, to me, equate to keeping the, li- the library open. And there'll be some pared-down version of it. And the thing is, that the building down there, it's a lovely old building. must be coming up for 100 years old. It's just got a lovely ambience to it. The staff are really good. As I say, it's, you know, they'll get books in for you if they don't have it. It's just a good space. It's got computers for people who might not have the internet or might not have a computer. Um, and it's just that whole thing about libraries elevating people. I mean, does that be the only, I guess, we nagging thing is, I guess, the world's changing so quickly, technology is changing so quickly. Is it the case that I'm just being a bit of a stick in the mud? But because for just for the reasons I've mentioned, it's having this space. And also, you know, books are expensive and that's prohibitive to people, to some people. And if they can get it for free at the library, okay, you might have to wait a wee while, but it's fantastic. The key for me is, and Almost without fail, MD I've spoken to in this podcast, particularly when we're talking about childhood memories of reading, the library is absolutely central because yeah. it's where your parents first take you. It's where you discover the, the joy of books. It's one of the first places where you're almost given your independence of being allowed to go to the library unaccompanied or allowed to make your own choices. And then that's maybe particularly for people who are readers, start to read books maybe above their age. And it almost makes you start to feel as if you're slightly more grown up. And I still think even to this day, partly for one of the reasons you're talking about of maybe books being still quite expensive for people, if you're wanting to encourage younger readers, and particularly if they they become voracious readers, you might not be able to keep up with them. Libraries can keep up with them. They can provide them with that stock. So I think it's still, I'm sure there's loads of families with kids now who be, you know, much the same as you, will be bemoaning the fact that these places aren't going to be open. And that's how you pass on the magic of reading to the next generation. Absolutely. And just echo your very eloquent point there, this, which I hadn't really thought of before, or maybe I'd only subconsciously thought of that you're getting a glimpse into this adult world through reading and it's dragging your consciousness on a little bit and maturing you a bit. The thing that really vexes me about this is that Glasgow's a city that always votes for left of centre councils. And, you know, regardless of your politics, that's 
that's just a reality. So what's the point in the Labour Party or the Scottish National Party if they can't keep a library open? It brings it down to that, you know, if it just comes down to neoliberal economic arguments, fine, but just don't give me the blarney that you're in any way left-wing if you're going to let the library shut. Because it's uh, funny, like, we've got a, a First Minister who is one of the most pro-books, pro-reading politicians, certainly in the UK, but probably further afield, who's constantly, to her credit, promoting Scottish literature, good literature, good books. Yes. And then the contrast with that, which at the moment is a, an SNP-led Glasgow Council, mm. not reopening <laughs> these libraries, which is closing them. It just saddens me, it really does. Well, I mean, it's also the, the, the clever what they did, although I think this was a Labour administration, they set up this Glasgow Life, which is what you call an arm's length institution, so that they make all these tough decisions and the politicians can kind of hold up their hands. And again, well, what's the point in you being elected if you can't have that executive power? If we move on to the fifth and final book choice in the podcast, that is the either the last book you read or the book you're currently reading. And the book that you've given me is Nicholas Nickleby by Charles Dickens. Yes, I finished that recently. And then just the last couple of days, I picked up Bossful Boy. So I'd like to talk about Nicholas Nickleby, which I got for the princely sum of 49 pence on Kindle. It's over a third of a million words. So, Paul, you can work out the per page cost of that. Bloody good value, I would say. <laughs> it took me several weeks to read the book, but it was never a chore. Sometimes I tire of a really long book. There's a couple of Dickens books that I've struggled with. Um, I mean, most of Dickens books I've loved. A couple of them I did struggle with. I struggled with the Pickwick Papers you spoke about persevering with a book or just putting it down. In Pickwick Papers, I um, twice I've started and not get into and just put it down. But David Copperfield is immensely readable. It's uh, just great storytelling. As you, I'm sure you know, it was massively popular in its day and it was published in CEO format. I think it was a shilling for a monthly instalment, which was a few chapters. And that went on for maybe 18 months, something like that. But Dickens was writing... For the people, he was writing for a huge readership. He was very wealthy because of this. So it's a book that I would highly recommend. Dickens has a similarity to Steinbeck because he obviously championed social causes through his literature. Steinbeck, we were talking about him, championing the cause of the migrants, the economic migrants in the Dust Bowl. In this book, Dickens deals with a certain kind of species of boarding school that uh, existed back then. Not your kind of posh Billy Bunter boarding school, but a type of school, I think they were known as Yorkshire schools, a lot of them must have been in Yorkshire, which were dumping grounds for unwanted kids, basically. For example, a man might marry a widow and she might have children to her um, first husband and the, the man, the, the new husband, might not want to bring them up. And so he would just sign them up to one of these establishments or whatever it was, a year, 20 quid or something. And there they would be not, they'd be ill-educated, they would be ill-treated, physically beaten, um, ill-fed, cold, and so as I say, you know, Dickens was illuminating this um, scandal, making people aware of it, and I think it contributed towards reforms of these schools. The guy who runs that school is a guy called Squeers, uh, who's like one of Dickens' great grotesque characters. There's truly malevolent characters in Nicholas Nickleby, not least Nicholas's uncle, Ralph Nickleby, who I guess the best way to describe him would be Ebenezer Scrooge before the ghosts arrive, but even more sinister than Scrooge, because he's not just cold-hearted or, as Dickens would maybe say, flint-hearted like Scrooge. He's a man that 
becomes possessed by malevolence when his nephew Nicholas calls him out. He just calls him out for what he is. And he, he comes to really despise his nephew and, and plot his downfall. There's another character, a, a wicked nobleman called Sir, Sir Mulberry Hawk. who's another scoundrel. He, he actually tries to force himself on Nicholas's sister Kate in the novel. And then there's other kind of more comic characters like Mr Mantellini. He's the um, husband of a milliner who Kate goes to work for. I, I remember, I think Dickens in his career, and it's something extraordinary, like thirteen or fourteen hundred characters that he's created in his Incredible. body of work. And you think, how is that possible? How is it possible to have and there's as you as you're mentioning, just a few of them, they're all so distinct. It's not like he's repeating the exact same character in yep. every book as well. That's extraordinary. The other thing that I wish more people would do, I know Alexander McCall Smith did it with the Scotland Street series and the Scotsman. You know, Dickens, as you mentioned, often it was like serialised. So Nicholas Nickleby, I think, was originally serialised. He was obviously getting paid by the, the word, so that's why they're hefty tomes. But again, I'd love to see that happening again, that a newspaper or a publication taking that, having the nerve to do that, to commission a, a novel, but in serial form. Yes. And I mean, interestingly, Dickens, even because of the serial form, he was attentive to the reader's feelings about the book and he would actually change what he'd planned to write sometimes according to how the readers have felt emotionally about a certain character for example but yeah wouldn't that be wonderful because um, I, be I worked out there if it was 300,000 words at 49 pence so it's like 0.0000163 pence per uh, word so that's, that's a real bargain actually that's not bad it's almost free <laughs> yeah it'd be interesting writing a book like that wouldn't it Paul you know writing it to order and knowing that you've not got a de- a one deadline for the book, but you've got 18 deadlines. It's a bit of a, bit of a thrill, thrilling ride that there's good characters. Just to reflect on what you were saying about how many characters he's got, there's so many characters in this book that I, because you're reading it over a long period of time, I had to use the Wikipedia page of Nicholas Nickleby just to remind myself sometimes who the characters are, because some of the kind of lesser-known characters who hasn't been in it for ages, you just forget who they are, you know? And there's this point that he goes, he basically joins off and joins the theatre, him and his pal Smike in Portsmouth. You know, there's this whole entourage of characters there. And he, next minute he's on stage with these people. So I actually literally had to, you know, use a, have a guide of the characters. So it's Dickens at his best. It's up there with the best Dickens I've read. And it's got that moral function that I like in a book. And he's attacking wealth and privilege and the power that comes with that, particularly the privilege of wealth. And he's attacking people who particularly use their wealth and influence to, to crush an enemy or to dominate someone. So there you go, Nicholas Nickleby. We have sadly almost come to the end of the podcast, Charles. As I mentioned right at the very start, in terms of your, your own work, The Mystery of the Strange Piper, which is the third book in the Leo Moran murder mystery series. It's just coming out, published by Backpage Press. And fingers crossed that it... Uh, gets a new readership and then people go and check out the first two books in the series as well. Thanks so much, Paul. Appreciate it and it's been great chatting to you. Thanks for listening to the Read All About It podcast and I'd love to hear what you thought about it. You can get in touch via Twitter at ReadAllAbout20, on Instagram at ReadAllAboutItPodcast or you can send an email to ReadAllAboutIt at paulcuddehy.com. If you've enjoyed the podcast, subscribe, leave a review and spread the word. If you haven't enjoyed it, Say nothing to anybody. 
But I do hope you can join me, Paul Cuddity, next time on the Read All About It podcast. And in the meantime, keep reading. Keep reading.